Welcome, good morning to you. My name is Ross, and I'm one of the elders here at New Life Gladstone. In 2005, Nicole Kidman made a movie called The Interpreter. In that role, uh, she played the Sylvia Broom, who was a United Nations interpreter, and in that role, she heard about an assassination plot, a plot of murder and evil, and it disturbed her. In one scene in the movie, she was talking to another character played by Sean Penn. She talks about revenge and mercy. She speaks of a primitive tribe and a tradition they have in which a convicted murderer is bound and thrown into a lake to drown. The victim's family has two choices. They can either swim out to save him or they can let him drown. If they let him drown, they will have their vengeance, but their grief will haunt them for the rest of their lives. If they swim out to save him, their grief will be easier, but they will found out that the world is uniquely unjust. Sylvia then concludes by saying, vengeance is a lazy form of grief. I want to keep that in mind, and we're going to revisit that statement later, and we'll see if you agree with it. I have my opinion, and I'll share that with you. Have you ever wanted to take vengeance, revenge, or retaliation against someone who's done something untoward to you? Of course you have. We all have. It's our sinful nature. It goes all the way back to Cain and Abel. It's just who we are as people. We humans like to take matters into our own hands, and when we get hurt by someone or offended by another, it is our sinful nature to want to get back when they do us wrong. Have you ever wanted to smack someone who hit you? Maybe now. Have you ever wanted to get revenge for someone cutting you off at 65 miles an hour on the freeway? I'm being generous there. It may be 70 or 75, but let's just stay under the speed limit, okay? Have you ever wanted to contact your inner nasty when someone said something against you on social media? You can do that. It's okay as long as we're being honest. We tend as people to take matters into our own hands when we see wrong or what we consider to be wrong, especially when we feel that we've been wronged by someone else. Philip Yancey, who's an American author who writes primarily about spiritual issues, said this about vengeance. Vengeance is a passion to get even. It is a hot desire to give back as much pain as someone gives you. The problem with revenge is that it never gets what it wants. It never evens the score. Fairness never comes. The chain reaction set off by every act of vengeance always takes its unhindered course. It ties both the injured and the injurer to an escalator of pain. Both are stuck on the escalator as long as parity is demanded, and the escalator never stops and never lets anyone off. Now, Yancey makes a good point, but his words are incomplete. He did not mention, at least 
in the part that I read, then it's the Lord's job, not ours, to have the right response. God is much better at bringing parity than we are. God's parity levels the playing field, removes us from the escalator, and helps us to move on. Seems that a few thousand years ago, people were also dealing with injustice, offenses, and a want of revenge and a desire for parity. The author of Psalm 94, like today, lived in a time when his society was engaged in the promotion of evil and the persecution of the righteous. You can read that here and read that for us. In verse 6, we read that the wicked arrogantly furthered their own interests at the expense of those who were defenseless, the widows, the aliens, the orphans. In verse 20, we even read that the government had formed an evil alliance with these oppressors. Indeed, wickedness was legally authorized. The evils against which the psalmist protested were those which had been practiced over a considerable time. In verse 3, he says, how long? He says, how long twice? How long? How long? Things had deteriorated to the point where the righteous were unable to reverse the trend. Protest no longer could be expected to change anything. At best, it would be ignored, and at worst, it would be a result of scorn and persecution. Does that seem so much like today? Despite this, the psalmist boldly addresses God, the wicked, and the righteous in this psalm. His words are as relevant for us today as they were to the people of his own day. Today, we live in a sinful society that is increasingly hostile to Christianity. We live in a society that has long since rejected God, shedding any biblical morality, and is opposing any who advocate the word of God. Now, I don't want to get into making a list. The list would be way too long, and we would just be here complaining. And if we sit around complaining, we won't get to any solution at all. But what I really want to focus in on is on the question of how we should respond when opposition shows up on our doorstep. That's the real key. What is, what do we do? What are we to do when faced with society's sins? How are we going to respond when righteousness is criminalized or our core faith is condemned? What do we do when persecution lands in our laps? You see, Psalm 94 supplies the answers to those questions. See, Psalm 94 gives us a model on how to respond in the face of intense persecution and opposition. With that, Psalm 94 gives us three responses to these afflictions. First, it encourages, it encourages us to, tr- to cry out to God in verses 1 to 7. Second, it encourages us to correct our natural response and wait patiently for his deliverance in verses 8 to 15. And we'll cover these here in a second. And third, it encourages us to have confidence and trust in God's ultimate judgment of the wicked in verses 16 to 23. Oh, and here's the overall idea. The God of paybacks will execute vengeance following his own timetable. If you're taking notes, Rusty, that's our outline. The cry, 
the correction, and the confidence. Let's start with the cry. Look with me, look with me at verses 1 and 2. It says, O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. Now, off the top, we have a persecuted believer calling out to God to come to his aid. You notice that he says, God of vengeance, twice, which is a suitable title for what the psalmist is saying. And he says, rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve, which means pay them back. Don't let the wicked go off without as much as a scratch or a bruise. He's crying out to God to do this. He's asking God to pay them back for what they've done to the righteous. So, at once in verse 1, we are confronted with a modern theological problem. Because the psalmist is clearly saying that there is a God of vengeance. And that seems to fly in the face of some today in modern thinking. Many people today say, no, there's no God of vengeance because the God I know about in the Bible is a God of love. The Old Testament God is mean and nasty and angry and an unpleasant character. And he kills people right and left. He deprives, he is spiteful, he is ruthless. That's the, not the God of the New Testament that I know. That's what they say. Didn't Jesus say, love your neighbor, pray for those who persecute you? So the uninformed say, even your own Bible is inconsistent. That's what the world says. God of vengeance, that's ridiculous. Richard Dawkins, never thought you'd hear that name in this church, a famous atheist, summarizes this position well. He says, the God of the Old Testament is an arguably the most unpleasant character of all fiction. Now we could stop there and start arguing, but I want to move on. He is jealous and proud. He's petty, unjust, unforgiving. He's a control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, and a racist bully. The God of the Old Testament, according to an atheist. You see, that's how the world views the God of the Old Testament. So if they heard me say, God of vengeance, rise up, they would laugh. And they would say, that's the most nasty, unpleasant character ever created in human fiction. And that kind of thinking has infiltrated church to where there are some people, even good people who go to good churches, they say, yeah, that's right, our God would never do that. As a result, some believers won't study the Old Testament. Why? Because the God of the Old Testament is mean and nasty and petty, and that's not the God these people seem to know. God is a God of love. Incomprehensibly, these people are also highly selective from what they read in the New Testament. For example, New Testament here. New Testament coming up. Romans 12, 19, New Testament. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. New Testament. 
Hebrews 10.30, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. And I don't have it here, but if you look at 2 Thessalonians, first chapter, don't read that now. 2 Thessalonians, first chapter, it'll parallel these. And then Revelation 21.8, New Testament. But to the cowardly, unbelieving, and abominable, and murderers, and sexually immoral, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in a lake that burns with fire and sulfur. This is the second death. New Testament. Hmm. So surely, if they do not like Psalm 94, they would not like the 30 passages in the New Testament or the over 60 passages in the Old Testament that talk of God's vengeance. Because their faith is messed up and seems to be rooted in a fundamental misunderstanding of the character of God. See, when we hear about a God of vengeance, we view it through our own eyes. Our vengeances mean human vengeance. We want to get even. It's unforgiving. It's harsh and cruel. And so we superimpose that over God and say, well, his vengeance must be bad too, just like mine. But see, what we don't understand, and if we don't read the biblical record rightly, is that the God of vengeance is a perfect balance between mercy and vengeance. Listen to this from Psalm 99, 8. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. In other words, God forgave the sins of the people, but showed his displeasure at their misdoings. He chastised them, but did not consume them. There's a difference. The psalmist finds no contradiction between a God of vengeance and a God of forgiveness. They're not conflicting concepts within the character of God, and in fact, his vengeance is an expression of his holiness. God must hate sin because he is perfectly holy. Who else but a God of perfect justice can administer justice upon his creatures? Perfect justice. So in Psalm 94, when the psalmist says, you're a God of vengeance, he's recognizing God's holiness and that God will give to the wicked exactly what they deserve in the exact amount for the exact result needed. Verses 1 to 7 strongly imply that the psalmist believed God alone was able to correct the evils of the day. From a human perspective, the righteous have not been able to successfully resist the plots of the wicked, who now have the authority of the government behind them, or who, worse yet, are the, are the government. The twice-used expression, how long, in verse 3, says that the conditions against which the psalmist protests have been around for quite some time. God alone must manage this matter because men have not been successful in restraining evildoers. They have failed. Far more importantly, the psalmist calls upon God to act because it is his responsibility to do so. Look at how they describe these persecutors. They're called proud in verse 2, which means that they are their own authority. They submit to only themselves, and then it says in verse 4, they, put for, they pour forth words arrogantly, 
they promote themselves, they parade around in their sin, they unleash this source of flood of proud speech, boasting about their sin. So it's gone from just simply doing to verbally boasting about their sin. And then verse 5 describes them even further. Just notice the verbs in that they crush, they afflict in verse 6, they slay, they murder. So the character of these oppressors is, I mean, these are thoroughly wicked people. And verse 6 says, they're picking on the most vulnerable of society, widows, orphans, foreigners, the people who didn't have a protector, these wicked are purposefully murdering for their own selfish gain. And so the psalmist says, God, when are you going to rise up and protect us? And these wicked, in verse 7, they mocked the concept of God. They, they say, no, the Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob pay heed. He doesn't see, he doesn't care, he's not going to do anything about it. That's the mindset of the wicked. So my question to you is, when those kinds of people come after you, when they target you for your faith in Christ, how are you going to respond? And admittedly, it's not going to be a violent targeting like it was in Israel, at least not yet. Their opposition to you will look something like this, perhaps. Parents being jailed because they do not use their child's preferred gender pronoun. College students being expelled for authoring a paper that says homosexuality is wrong and gender is fixed at birth. You are fired for not celebrating Pride Month with your company that is promoting it. Fired, yes, because you're not upholding company DEI policy and being tolerant to people of all religions and ideas and fringe concepts. Well, not so much fringe anymore. Is there a note there that you hear? These are very real scenarios. Maybe it hasn't happened to you, but these have happened. And that's just the beginning. It's the entry point into persecution against believers. So the question facing us all, when that comes knocking on your door, how are you going to respond? What is the psalmist's response? He says to cry out to God, reject retaliation and entrust vengeance to the Lord. Because you notice he does nothing but cry out to God. 1 Peter 2.23 says, when he was reviled, talking about Christ, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him, his father, who judges justly. Christ was the target of the most intense persecution. The Jews were afflicting him. The Romans were oppressing him. Satan was attacking him. And yet he kept trusting himself to him who judges righteously. So if you need a model for this, look at Psalm 94. But if you want the greatest example, look to the Lord Jesus Christ who perfectly showed a righteous response to persecution. Remember, first response is to cry out to God and trust vengeance to him alone. The second response comes in the next section, the correction. So we move from the cry 
to the correction. Verses 1 to 7, the psalmist spoke to God about sinners. Now in verses 8 to 15, he turns and speaks to sinners about God. Notice that his first words are, pay heed. Because that's exactly what the wicked are saying that God will never do. God will never pay attention to us. The cruel oppressors knew that they were doing wrong, but justified themselves by passing a part of the blame on to God. You're not paying any attention. Sure, they seem to say, we're sinning, but why hasn't God done anything about it? God either does not know or he doesn't care. I haven't been struck by lightning yet. If God isn't concerned about our sin, why should we worry about it? Seems to be what they're saying. Bluntly, the psalmist calls in verse 8, the logic of the wicked is stupid and senseless. The psalmist is saying, you need to pay attention, you wicked, you senseless idiot. When, you, when will you understand, stupid ones? When are you going to wake up? Do you really think that God who made the universe doesn't see what you're doing? You think he doesn't hear you. Think he doesn't know you. Think he won't judge you for your crimes? In verse 9, he made your ear. He hears everything. He made your eyes. He sees everything. The New York Times reported that during the attacks of September 11th, the communications between rescue workers and their commanding officers was not very good. Instead of reaching the workers by radio to warn of the imminent collapse of the Trade Center towers, a messenger had to be sent by foot across acres of carnage and wreckage. And he arrived a minute before they fell. But our communication with a great commander can be different and is different. Open your ears and hear what God is saying. Open your mouth and ask him what to do. Does he who implement the ear not hear? Does he who formed the eye not see? Verse 11 says, God knows everything. God knows your thoughts, your plans, the intentions of your heart. He sees it all perfectly. And he says he knows that man's thoughts are mere breath. The word breath here, which translates in Ecclesiastes to as vanity, means it's meaningless. It's like a puff of smoke. It's here. It's gone. It has no lasting value, no permanence. And the psalmist is saying in verse 11, God knows everything you do, wicked people, and he knows your thoughts. They will amount to nothing, and he will judge you for them. Now in verse 12, the psalmist changes his focus. He moves from this correction to the wicked to the encouragement of the righteous. That's important. It's just not beating the, the wicked people. It's building up those who love him. Because he knows that those who are suffering affliction, those who are being persecuted, he knows that it's easy for them to think wrongly, to despair, to think God has forgotten them, neglected them, that God's not listening to their prayers. And so he encourages them by way of correcting their thinking. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. It means you are favored. 
You are fortunate. You are happy. And the reason he says that is because God uses trials and affliction. He uses the oppression of wicked men for his believers to make them more like Christ. The New Testament says the same thing in James 1, 2-4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The idea here is to stand strong during your challenges. And then in verse 13... He says, your days of affliction, not, not will continue, your days of affliction will end. This is just a season. Rest is on the way. Rest is coming. Your gracious Father will rescue you. Rescue you. He will comfort your heart and he will give you the grace necessary to survive. Does that bring you comfort? Know that God is on your side and you will get to rest does to me. So the psalmist reassures them and us of God's continual care. And then the last part of verse 13, he says, the pit is dug for the wicked. The pit is a word for grave. The psalmist assures us not to lose sight of the ultimate end of this and the ultimate end of the wicked. God will give you relief, give them retribution, they will suffer, you will survive. Period. And then he gives this incredible assurance in verse 14. God will never abandon his people. He will never forsake his inheritance. It's not simply that he won't do it. It's that he will never do it. Because once you are his, he will never, never, ever, ever, ever abandon his children. So, they can rely on that promise that God has them in his hands and he will always keep his tight grip on him. Verse 15 gives us a final encouragement in this passage. He says, one day judgment will again be righteous, which is to say, today ungodly men rule. Today, it seems like righteousness has been banished and sin reigns supreme. Today, you will be the loser. But one day, righteousness will rule. One day, the wicked will be vanquished. One day, judgments will be true and right again. So don't lose heart. Do not lose heart. We now come to the third section, the confidence. From the cry to the correction, now to the confidence that encourages us to trust in his ultimate judgment of the wicked in verses 16 to 23. Verse 16 fittingly introduces the conclusion to his psalm where he says, who will stand up for, for me against evildoers? Who will take his stand for me against those who do the wickedness? At first, it seems like the psalmist is inviting others to join his bandwagon who are righteous in resisting evildoers, but it's really not saying that. What he's really saying is no one but God is able to stand up for me. The psalmist expresses his magnificent confidence that in the end, 
the righteous will win out, God's justice will be vindicated. So let me summarize verses 16 to 19 in this way. He saved me, he sustains me, and he satisfies me. The psalmist was being oppressed and afflicted by the wicked, and there was no one there to stand with him, no one to defend him, except in verse 17, if the Lord had not been his help, his soul would have been dwelt, uh, would soon have dwelt in the abode of silence. In other words, he was facing a direct attack, death was imminent, it was life and death for him, and he said, no one came to my rescue, no one came to my aid, except the Lord. And if it hadn't been for God who saved him, he would have perished. He said, I would have dwelt in the abode of silence. Verses 15 to 17 say, the abode of silence is a finger of death. He says he would have died. It's like what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 to 10. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength, that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. In other words, God came through for us, and God rescued us, and he saved us, and now we trust him even more because he delivered us and he alone. That is exactly what happened with the psalmist here. And so he says in verse 18, not only did he save me, but also he sustained me. Charles Spurgeon addresses this also in one line. It was God's, worth, it was God's word that made us. Is it any wonder that his word should sustain us? The psalmist was overwhelmed with anxiety and fear and thought, and, and this is the end. I'm done. I'm done for. But God's, but God's consolation satisfied his soul because he was reminded of God's care for us. And it should remind us of God's care for us as well. Then he starts reassuring himself. Okay, a little self-talk here. In verse 20, he's now speaking about the wicked. Can a righteous God have a partnership with wicked rulers? Of course not. How could the God of light and the rulers of darkness join forces? Absolutely impossible. Could the wicked still form these associations to destroy the righteous? Yes. But even amid that, we can still have confidence in what God does for us. Look at verse 22. But the Lord has become my stronghold, and my God the rock of my refuge. Here is his confidence as he looks to the future. Even though his enemies haven't disappeared, even though persecution is still going on, he says, I have a refuge they can't touch. It is the Lord God himself. I will run to God. I won't run to man. I won't run to friends. I won't run to my own resources. I will run to God Almighty. So he says, God is my confidence. And then in verse 23, he comforts himself by reminding himself of what he said in verse 1, that God is a God of vengeance. He will uphold his justice and he will repay the wicked for their unrighteousness. 
In the end, God will make every right, every wrong a right. And the wicked will receive what they deserve. The righteous will also receive, the righteous will also receive what they deserve. We can conclude with these reminders. Simply remember that revenge is not our responsibility, but God's. Repaying for evil deeds is not our responsibility, but God's. We may appeal to him to act, and God is fully aware of men's deeds, and he is concerned with the welfare, welfare of his people. For us, God alone is our refuge and strength. God alone. So is vengeance a lazy form of grief? Let me help you out. In truth, as a believer, they are two words that not, do not ever belong in the same sentence together. Ever, ever. We grieve loss. We grieve injustice. We grieve oppression. We grieve wrongs done. We grieve unfulfilled expectations. And we have all the right to grieve and to grieve hard at times. Even twice as hard. However, we must wait on God in our suffering for him to act as he chooses and when he chooses. He is faithful to the covenant he has made with us, so in the end, justice will come. We must submit to God to the right to assign what is right and wrong and the resulting consequences and allow ourselves to be instructed by the Lord because while grief is ours, vengeance belongs to God. Let's pray. Father, we, we never want to be in a position where we face the level of opposition that the psalmist did. And yet there's a very real chance that today, uh, if that day hasn't already come, we will also. So that when at school, at work, or just living our lives, uh, wherever it may be, when we are opposed to Christ, help when, when, help us to respond in a way that gives you glory and honor. May we be people who respond rightly to persecution. And I pray that you, gives us, you would give us wisdom to know how to live in a world that is hostile and broken. May we be agents of light, shining the light in dark places, illuminating the pathway to forgiveness for people who are desperately stuck and trapped. Thank you for rescuing us. May we be those people who help to rescue others. Amen.